Welcome back to Art Watch Podcast. I know it has been a very long time since I last published an episode and we left off on the critique of The Great British Bake Off's Mexico Week. Um, if you haven't listened to the episode, definitely do. I thought it was kind of funny and I got some good feedback from from listeners. And then also kind of you should watch it along with or watch along with the uh, uh, the Mexico Week episode. It's I think you'll cringe just as much as I did. Uh, so why? Why did I disappear? Uh, well, a lot of reasons. Mental health definitely took a turn for the worst last semester. You know, had some personal relationship struggles going on uh, with friends, family and all the fun stuff. And by fun, I mean not fun. And, you know, kind of living between two cities made me feel like I wasn't really grounded anywhere kind of like it was a fever dream so as soon as I got somewhere didn't really feel like I was there until like months later um but I was sort of failing at studying for orals because I was also taking a fantastic class at the Met which was really fun it was like my only fun thing last semester except for seeing my friend Anna who hello Anna um and on top of it like I was teaching and last semester was bad not gonna lie a lot of it was my fault my heart wasn't really in it after a very difficult end to the summer um I'm sure other educators know that this return to in person especially at least for my experience at the collegiate level has been a huge struggle uh students are still very much recovering from the pandemic and it's like they missed out on a lot of really important developmental moments and so I teach survey which is mainly freshmen and sophomore students but it's kind of like I was teaching high schoolers and it was pretty tough because I decided early early on in my college career that EC through 12 just wasn't for me because the maturity of students is really not there and I'll think of the general constraints of conservative state standards um but yeah so having to teach college students who were really more like high schoolers was very exhausting since all of my previous methods just really didn't apply and my whole semester was very experimental in trying to keep their attention it was i i love all my students but it was very much like working with squirrels um and so like the attention span wise anyway um and then with the you know when the professor loses passion for teaching it makes students not want to be there and then the prof doesn't want to be there uh, like they want to be there even less and so it was kind of like this vicious cycle of and quite frankly I really wasn't getting paid enough to care anymore I still don't get paid enough to care too much um but that is allegedly because I'm still working as a professor and I love my job um but I've also officially moved back to Houston and it's very great to finally be stable and with my support system as I'm transitioning to candidacy and I'm working on my Smithsonian Research Fellowship um and so this is going to be my last semester teaching. I'm very happy for this change. I think it was the right move for me um, and to have some uh, stability, like in terms of living, but also financial stability. Um, and so, yeah, I'm pretty excited. And I I think this semester I've, I've definitely solidified my hypothesis that students now participate much more online because I finally have a group of chatty students like I did the first like semester that I was teaching. And, and they're much more... Uh, active online. And I, and I really appreciate that. I think I have a good bunch of students this semester. Um, but yeah, so even though I'm back home, I'm still enrolled in my program. Getting through the oral exam has been really challenging. And, you know, at some points it's made me really want to drop out of my program because I was very much starting to lose my passion for art history. But, you know, kind of have to remind yourself that I'm here for a reason. I love it. And it's just, I have to get over this one bureaucratic hurdle. And then I'm on to the fun part of dissertation and I'm sure like maybe my uh, upper level classmates are gonna be like it's not that fun but I love just focusing in on on my research so I'm excited for it 
Uh, but enough about my struggles. Let's move on to something much more fun. And since I'm obviously, like I said, I'm kind of struggling with studying for my exam. I thought the best way to sort of reorient myself was to teach the information. And it was kind of the perfect opportunity to jump back into the podcast because I've really been missing making episodes. So the next few episodes, um, because of this, are going to be related to the topics that I need to cover in my exam. So that means looking at my major area, which is Latin American art from post-independence to roughly the 1960s with a dash of the Chicano movement. Then my focus area, which is racialized representations of indigenous subjects from Mexico and the Andes between 1890 and 1950. And then, of course, last but not least, my minor area, ancient American art with an emphasis on Mesoamerica. And so as I'm transitioning back into doing these episodes, I'm going to pause my Patreon for the month of March, April, and probably for the month of May. Uh, but I still want to give a shout out to Caitlin for continually supporting the podcast um, and Wonderful friend, wonderful patron, of course, too. And so right now, the best way you can support ArtWatch is to share the episodes with friends, follow me on social media, interact with me on Instagram and TikTok. They're both the same at ArtWatch Podcast. Um, and you can interact with me on Twitter, but I'm not as active. I think more people are leaving the platform because Elon Musk. Um, but that's a conversation for another, another day. Um, but yeah, so I would really appreciate it if you continue to visit my social media Continue to visit the website, www.artwatchpodcast.com, and I'm working on updating it right now and putting out new blog posts, like step-by-step -step guides on how to write various types of essays, um, and then sort of focusing in on things like the thesis statement and how to write your conclusion and, and all those, you know, really important parts. And this way, the website can be more of a teaching tool, um, and, and that way it can apply to more than just Latin American art. So if there are any other um, art history teachers or professors on listening to this, they can use it for their students as well. Um, so I also, before I fully transition into today's topic, I do want to shout out the couple people who have purchased some merch, even though I've been on hiatus. I really hope you love it and I appreciate you continuing to support the podcast. Um, yeah, so like I, I really, really appreciate you doing that. Um, but before we jump into the nitty gritty of our, t our topic today, which is Artist Travelers, we have a very special surprise guest, my boyfriend, Louis Garcia, and his hello. hello. Uh, his qualifications are he is here while I am recording. <laughs> he has a minor in art history, and he works in film and TV. Action. <laughs> yep. Um. So yeah, do you do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, or? Um, I am excited for this topic because I feel like a bit of a traveler myself, uh, and. I really like the landscape. We haven't gone into that yet. No, well, we're going to talk about it. I mean, it's part of Artist Traveler's landscape paintings. He right. he likes nature. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he definitely likes nature. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of great. It's nice to have somebody on the podcast that I can have a conversation with instead of just doing like a lecture at yeah. the listeners. I am not a professor. I, I am not at this level. So it'll be fun. Thanks for being a good sport and listening to me talk about art. Um, but anyway, for today's topic, we're going to work on, uh, we're going to cover some of the work of well-known artist travelers in Latin America. And you might be thinking, why on earth is that important? What could possibly be interesting about travel logs, sketches, landscape paintings? Uh, well, artist travelers really set the tone for zoological, archaeological, anthropological and ethnographic studies in the quote new world obviously wasn't new it's been there forever but you know colonization um anyway but this practice began during the colonial period and travelers would report their findings to local leaders which would then be passed on to the scholars of the old 
old. Um, and so although the practice began in the colonial period, it lasted well into the 19th century. So for some context, that's roughly colonial to independence. Um, and our stuff today is going to focus mainly on the like 19th century, like late 18th to like mid 19th century, um, just because that's kind of where my my uh, area of expertise is is fully going to be as soon as I pass these oral exams. Um, and so, yeah, one of the important things to keep in mind when viewing the work of, of traveler artists is that there is a specific goal in mind. Um, this could vary from simply conducting scientific studies of the flora and fauna to conducting um, you know, very racist ethnographic studies related to the living indigenous populations or surveys of the land to further expansion of colonial borders and sometimes um, in the case to even expand modern technologies into land far away from the city center. Um, so while some of the works, uh, so, so while, sorry, <laughs> while to some degree the works are an observation of the natural landscape, they're more so intended to serve the political and in some cases spiritual ideologies of the period and the location in which it was created. So this has got like a old world lens looking at the new world. Pretty much. And like some of the artists we're going to look at aren't actually uh, like they're not Latin American natives. They're from like the United States, countries in Europe. Um, but some of the artists are Latin American born. Um, and so you see like a slight difference in their their tone, but like, I don't know, I feel like a common undertone in a lot of these works is the use of the philosophies that were created by Alexander von Humboldt, who's known for his botanical geography that laid the foundation for biogeography, as well as his idea that the local ecologies impact human development and then vice versa. And so something really fascinating about this aspect of his philosophy is that it laid the groundwork for studies on climate change caused by humans. Um, but that's like that's taken obviously later into the so we're still looking at the stuff he originally made and kind of comparing it yeah we are going to look at him today which i'm excited about because i like looking at drawings of animals but like he wasn't like the best guy which we're going to talk about yeah, me too. um but yeah so like we're looking it's like um travel journals uh, a lot of what his his works are and some of the other artists too and and so these are books that they would you know start like by sketching and then they would eventually like write their whole like you know can study related to it and then at the end of the book or somewhere in the in between they'd have different watercolor plates or lithographs some type of etching that's printed in the book lewis and clark style yes but but slightly different racial context sure, but both sure. you know both have the, the survey kind of goal in mind yeah and like both are still very like embedded in white supremacy sure, sure, and expansion sure. and, and so like, that's kind of like we have to like when looking at all of these works you know be very critical critical of them in the sense that like there are a lot of and undertones but sometimes very overt overtones of like their their philosophies related to race and the hierarchies of it um but even so, like, which we'll talk about once we really dive into the categories that I've kind of laid out for today. Um, when we're looking at, like, you know, observations of the animals or landscape, it kind of is hard to tell depending on how the artist, like, approaches it. But those ideas are still there, kind of that expansion of colonial, imperial, mm -hmm. and, or newly independent uh, governments. Um, yeah, so, like, uh, I'm another thought... Ooh, I can't speak now. I'm very excited to talk to everybody today, I guess. Um, but another common theme 
in the work of artist travelers is the idea of the romantic. So for those unfamiliar with romantic art, this refers to the 18th and 19th century view of nature, labor, and history, and it doesn't often tie to literal romance, uh, but rather like this rose-colored glasses view of the world. So sort of think Eugene uh, Delacroix, Liber Lady, sorry, Liberty Leading the People, sometimes called Lady Liberty Leading the People, or Jericho's Raft of, of the Medusa. Um, so they have these almost heroic interpretations of, of quite gruesome events in history, but romantic art also encompasses that of the sublime. Uh, so this sort of intense awe and fear of nature, not the beloved 90s punk band, um, but there is a slight regional difference in works produced in Latin America, even if the artists are canonically considered Western, like Frederick Catherwood and even Alexander von Humboldt, um, who we'll talk about both later, uh, Catherwood probably in part two of the podcast episode. Um, so sort of, I want to break this up into categories, the first one being observations of the flora and fauna, the section, or the second section being observations of land in, term of in terms of expansion, and then lastly, uh, observations of the indigenous populations, which will be in the next episode. Um, so there is a lot of overlap between these categories, but I'm going to try to end on a few works that sort of overtly make these connections between th the three. And again, that'll, that'll be in part two. Um, so you'll have to come back and hear that section. Uh, but yeah, so uh, obviously there's more than just these few categories, but they're probably these are probably the most prevalent that I have seen so far in like my research into this this period in Latin American uh, artistic production. Um, but just remember, you know, this isn't a complete list, just sort of a, a semi dive into the idea. So maybe this will have to be um, split into maybe more than two episodes. I don't know. Um, we'll find out. But I, I know two for sure. Um, with that being said, let's start with the flora and fauna. And you have a little list yeah. point that I made for you. I do. I've got it right in front of me. Nice. So the flora and fauna, um, we're going to look at these works using von Humboldt and Frederick Edwin Church. Uh, so studies of the flora and fauna of the new regions were a very important aspect of colonization because it allowed for a deeper understanding of the local ecologies and how it impacted human life. Um, individual studies of plants and animal life helped colonizers adapt to the new surroundings, but also sort of, you know, make the wheels turn and what they can do to transform it and also the people inhabiting it. Uh, so once completed, these observations would be sent back to the schools of the old world, which really led to our modern understanding of the development of species, both plants and animals. Um, something important to note is that a lot of older scholarship fails to mention that much of the knowledge that these artists reported was actually due to the interactions with local indigenous populations and their wealth of information related to the plants and animals. Um, so without, without it, these scientists would likely not understand things like the toxicity of plants, migration patterns of animals, and much, much more. So, so these survey artists got information about what they're writing of from the local indigenous population. Yeah, I mean, it's and, kind of how, like, if we want to go back to the, the Lewis and Clark analogy, um, how they were working with Sacagawea, and, you know, she's sort of translating all of this information to her, and it's obviously much more complex than that. Um, but it's that same kind of idea where they're working with them, even though, you know, the scientists of the period um, intentionally left out those indigenous voices, and but also they have, like, sort of hierarchies. They, if you look at their uh, journals, like, um, I've read some of uh, Frederick Catherwood's journals, and they have really not nice things to say about indigenous populations. So these, these artists, though, these survey artists, if that's the right thing to even call them, they're not just going out blind and, like, painting, no. painting squirrels and birds. And... 
sending not entirely i mean there are there like are moments of that but um oftentimes they would have like local guides typically who were indigenous but they were i i don't want to say assimilated because you know it was a forced assimilation but they typically knew um the local language like the 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 language of the colonizers in addition to their um native tongue so there was some tapping into like pre-established knowledge but you know it probably got warped or changed Mm -hmm. yeah varying ways yeah it did and um i mean like they they would take this knowledge they learned and sort of expand on on what they already knew of similar species so like monkeys in the jungle versus monkeys in in other places like africa and asia right Mm -hmm. and so looking at how like certain species develop over like other ones i'm I'm not a scientist so i'm probably messing up those terms but um yeah kind of looking at like the the counterparts and how they develop gotcha um yeah but so there is a little bit of like the the genuine curiosity i think but i more of it is to sort of serve the political ideologies of the period of expansion under the guise of like enlightenment and science mm-hmm. um but there's a lot of uh, especially we'll see later on some of the examples that i gave you and i'll make sure to post them on the, the instagram uh like post um there are they take these same approaches of studying the plant and animal life to studying the indigenous people and it's very problematic oh. yeah so um but yeah so let's uh i mean let's start with uh alexander alexander von humboldt uh he was born in 1769 died 1859 oh wow he's like 90 years old that's crazy um so who was he why is he important so he's a german polymath geographer naturalist explorer and proponent of romantic philosophy and science um like i said earlier he sort of laid the the foundation to modern um like surveys of land and climate change but he was um the younger brother of the prussian minister philosopher and linguist willem von humboldt uh and humboldt's you know work on botanical geography like i said really laid the foundation for a lot of modern day sciences that we have so between 1799 and 1804 humboldt traveled extensively in the americas exploring and describing them for the first time with a modern western scientific point of view and of course you know we we take modern with a grain of salt but this is what scholarship has said about him um uh, but anyway, uh, his description of the journey was written up and published in several volumes over 21 years. He was one of the first people to propose that the lands bordering the Atlantic Ocean were once joined, um, so South America wow. and Africa in particular. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna start with a few of his watercolors from his book Voyage d'Humboldt et de contre en deuxième partie observation de zoologie d'anatomie comparée, which Sorry if I'm butchering that. It's been a while since I spoke French, uh, which encompasses various observations from the Atlantic Ocean and the land of the, quote, New World. Remember, it's not new. It was there. Uh, But the book was published around 1811 and was widespread among academic circles across Europe and even the United States. And if you would like to read it for free, but in French, in its original publication, uh, state, I'll put the link to the Biblioteca Virtual Miguel de Cervantes, which is part of Spain's Centro de Humanidades Digitales in la Universidad de Alicante. I think that's right. Um, but the first work that we're going to look at is a watercolor of a Vulture Griffiths, um, also known as the Andean Condor. Um, sometimes they call it like the Colombian or 
Peruvian Argentine condor. It kind of, I guess it varies by the country that it's in. But it's the Andean condor. Um, so the vulture is found in the Andes Mountains and is the largest flying bird in the world by combined measurement of weight and wingspan. The condor is primarily a scavenger feeding on carrion or, you know, like large dead animals. Um, it prefers large carcasses such as those of deer or cattle. And the overall length of the condor can range from around three feet to about four feet. So in other words, this thing is giant. Um, and, and the book has a full watercolor of the bird and a separate page with a closer observation of the head and feet. You can see the little skull at the yeah. bottom of that yeah. stuff he's got it resting on. <laughs> yeah, so the, yeah, the full view of the bird is really interesting. It's depicted perched on a log of some kind, and it's in this profile position, and its wings are at its side, and there's, I think it's a ram skull. Down yeah, that's what it looks like. It blends into the log itself. You have to, hmm. I think, if you were just look at it at first glance, you might not see it um but it's it's you know it's still there at the feet uh but the vulture has a red featherless head with little flaps that kind of look like what you'd see on a turkey <laughs> um the beak is white and tan it's quite large and comes to a very sharp curved point so i would not like to be on the receiving end of that um and the vulture has like this fuzzy white scruff of feathers around its neck it kind of looks like a fluffy turtleneck or like those a jackets nice that have like that 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 like uh lambs is it fur or wool yeah okay that like that the monarch robe yeah kind of like <laughs> and and uh so so yeah like um the white is sort of contrasted with this sleek black body that has additional lines of white in the wings and um like I said, the or actually no, sorry, the full body painting of the feet, like the feet really aren't prevalent, but in that close up sketch, you yeah, can they give see you a really how detailed look. At yeah, they are very long, bony, Big and tools. yes, and very very sharp talons. Um, kind of terrifying. I'm not gonna lie, especially like thinking of how big this bird is. Um, let me see. We're out on time. Okay, we're doing pretty good on time. Um, but yeah, so this, this book has tons of depictions of various animals that you would see. Um, this, the compilation that I was looking at focused primarily on animals, bugs, all that fun stuff. But there are some pages in there that have like local plant life. Um, but there's, my favorite was the axolotl, butterflies, beetles, and fish. Um, but I really want to bring attention to this watercolor of the Simia ursina or red howler monkey. Um, it's super interesting. Uh, and kind of stands out from the other primates that he depicts in the in the comp composition. Um, not the one specifically, but in like compilation. Am I am I using the right term? I don't the volume. Know. The volume. Thank you. <laughs> um, and in my opinion, I think this one is is really striking, probably because the colors are so vibrant. Mm. Um, the monkey is sort of perched on a tree branch. Its tail is hanging below where the animal is seated, and it kind of well, it's actually it's wrapped around this wig here and yeah I, i'm betting that that was something he probably observed that uh that they do yeah definitely and like it has this um like it looks like a pod or like an unripe plantain kind of yeah. like a giant snow pea and it's like it's holding it and then its hand is sort of gesturing back to its face uh, like it's like I don't know it kind of looks like it's doing the sign language for like eat or food I don't remember what it is uh, but if you kind of get that gesture um, and then the coloring of, of the monkey is quite interesting it's got this deep almost burnt orange on the body but a brighter tone around its face um, and the, the mouth kind of looks like it has like a bluishy gray tone um, but yeah so like 
why why are these scientific observations important? Uh, these works, of course, like I said earlier, they're part of the Enlightenment period. So on the surface level, it's why they're you know seen as studies of different species of animals found found in Latin America and sort of how they compared to their old world counterparts. And then, like I mentioned earlier, works related to the flora and fauna were a way for explorers to get a lay of the land. And this idea is also going to be prevalent and present in broader landscapes that we'll look at next with Frederick Edwin Church. Um, and the part on landscapes and expansion, which will be after the flora and fauna. Uh, but these observations played a role in identifying the types of animals seen in indigenous art. Um, so, for example, the vulture griffis is seen on various Andean textiles, whereas the howler monkey can be found on, in small gold pendants of the gold region. Um, and this is this likely wasn't the original intent, but you know later scholars looked to these drawings as important sources of information for this. Um, but of course, you know von Humboldt's books related to zoology were, were mainly commissioned for scientific studies. Mm. Uh, so there are, however, some instances in von Humboldt's work where he takes a scientific approach, and you'll see it on on your next slide, um, as in like like to studying indigenous people, as in they're being sketched in the same way that he sketches animals, yeah. which positions indigenous subjects on the same level as animals. And so, like with many explorers of the period, it was for the sake of ethnography. But of course, today we can understand it as reinforcing whiteness as superior. So super ultra mega problematic. I mean, if you look at, uh, I'm gonna look at it too with you now. Um, if you're looking at that first slide, it kind of looks like they're copying um, some of the Aztec manuscripts of like how they would- uh, Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah, so like that one, it, it kind of looks like they're, they're just you know, sort of transcribing it. But if you go to the next one, it's, uh, it's called Costumes of the Indians of Michoacan. Um, and so they're meant to be indigenous subjects, but they don't look like they clearly are European subjects in brown face, or he's not like actually representing their likeness. They just look kind of like cookie cutters are, to me. Are you saying that Von Humboldt got to Europeans to dress in indigenous clothes and then paint them? Or he's just kind of sketching people in his likeness dressed up in this stuff okay so this is actually a really great question because i mean we don't know for certain but based on how a lot of these studies were done it is not uncommon to see they'll get european or euro descended sitters dressed in indigenous garb no way. yeah wow um so i don't know for like um for sure on this one specifically i think it's the case just because of the way that he has Europeanized a lot of the features, and if you look at indigenous uh, communities of Michoacan, they don't. They don't mm -hmm. um, so I I really think that he's just sort of dressed up maybe two people that were on the 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 voyage with him, yeah. or he just you know sort of paid some I don't know, local people to to do it. Wow. But yeah, it it very much looks like he's he's Europeanizing them. Which if it's not like if if he wasn't using European sitters and he is using indigenous sitters and he's Europeanizing their features, then it's just, you know, it's like a, a whole other level of colonization that's happening and, and sort of, again, positioning European features and, and um, like, over that of non-right. So, yeah. But I think that they are very, very problematic either way. But he has, like, whole, like whole books of these, too. Um, 
And so he very well could have just had some some sit-ins, some models he yeah, and that's travels the thing. with. Like they'll they would take and and this is like another thing of like they're called explorers, but you know, like they're just essentially like pillaging communities, mm -hmm. but without the the violence that we would think of as like an actual like act of war. I mean, it is an act of war, but it's it's more subtle. It's gotcha. more it's like it's more coded. Um, and so they would go into these communities and they would uh, either take or buy for a very, very cheap price uh, local um, attire, art, like pottery or um, sculpture. And they would kind of like amass all of this and bring it back to their home, uh, either in Europe or in the United States, or in some cases, if they had a residence in the country that they were exploring. <laughs> And you can't see me doing the quotes, but I am. Um, and so they would, this is how we actually have a lot of surviving objects from the period. Um, in the same way that the main reason we have a lot of surviving pre-Columbian gold is because the Spanish took it and it's in the Vatican. <laughs> so, and what wasn't uh, taken was actually buried by indigenous communities because they were like, quit stealing our shit, you fucking assholes. Mm. Um, and it's like, it's still a trauma today. Um, so yeah, that's probably why, like, that's I kind of think that he had sitters doing this. Some stand-ins, as we call in the business. <laughs> yes, um, but I mean the if we look at I think if we if we look at the the books as, and I'm talking about the books that are like specifically meant for scientific study of the animals, um, I think they're they're really fascinating. It, it's um, I don't know. I feel like I think too, because like I was really interested in science as a kid, and so we had to do a lot of these sketches. And now, kind of learning where it came from, I think was kind of a. Oh, it's super fascinating. Yeah. I I love uh, landscape, uh, portrait pictures, artworks, and stuff like that. So it's super fascinating to see kind of like the origins of this, at least in the New World. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, it was it was really like embedded in in the Enlightenment and sort of like this idea of science. Understanding. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, today we can heavily criticize it. Like I feel like we have been, and and if uh, any listeners out there think I should be more critical, please tell me, and and I can do that. I have no problem being more critical. Um, but shall we move on to Frederick Edwin Church? Let's do it. All right. So he was born in 1826, died in 1900. Um, Frederick Edwin Church was perhaps one of the best known representatives of the Hudson River School. So that's in the United States. Um, and Hudson River School is known for landscape painting as well as, um, you know, kind of traveling. And Church was one of the most traveled in this group. Uh, so he was born in Hartford in 1826. He was the very privileged son of Joseph Church, a jeweler and banker in the city, uh, who interceded with Connecticut, uh, with uh, scion and collector Daniel Wadsworth to persuade the landscape painter Thomas Cole to accept his son as a student. So he has like this whole train. Thomas of... Cole, that's the Oxbow. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I believe so. Um, but yeah, so he has like this whole train of of very prominent, I guess, privilege, really. Um, but uh, yeah, so from about 1844 to 46, Church studied with Cole in his Catskill uh, New York studio and accompanied him on sketching uh, various uh, journeys into the Catskill Mountains and the Berkshires of Massachusetts. I apologize if anybody in Massachusetts says I mispronounced that. 
Um, so at one point, uh, the master characterized the student as having the finest eye for drawing in the world. Um, so following his turn, uh, his term with Cole, Church established his own studio in New York City and quickly seized a large reputation, less for the allegorical landscapes that had distinguished Cole's output than for uh, the expansive New York and New England views that synthesized sketches of vari various locales into these vivid compositions. And so in 1857, uh, Church leapt to nationwide and even international prominence with his seven-foot-wide picture, Niagara. Um, I didn't put it here because we're going to look at another one that's that's related specifically to Latin America. Um, but the Niagara painting uh, really stunned spectators in New York and in Great Britain, where it was shown from 1857 and 1858. And then with its combination, uh, this was with its combination of breath and very breathtaking view of the waterfront. Um, so Church's paintings in the U.S. terrain blended both the ideas of the sublime, which is a huge part of the um, Enlightenment, um, in addition to the nation's expansionist endeavors, uh, which you probably know as Manifest Destiny. And so like other painters of the Hudson River School, many of Church's paintings in the Americas were related to westward expansion and, of course, imperialism. Um, but when thinking of his paintings in other countries, the idea of Manifest Destiny isn't entirely absent either. So, of course, the United States is best known for getting in other people's business, especially with our Latin American neighbors. And so when we look at Church's paintings of Central and South American landscapes, we kind of have to read it with this as an undertone, um, but maybe even as actually an overtone. Um, so we're going to look at, it should be your next slide if you haven't already changed it. So this is the heart of the Andes, and it's probably one of the best examples of the imperial undertones in Church's works. So by the late 1840s, Church had fallen under the spell of the renowned naturalist and explorer Alexander von Humboldt, who we just talked about. Um, and von Humboldt really implored, stop looking at my notes, you're not allowed to. Uh, von Humboldt implored artists to travel and paint equatorial South America. And so in 1853, Church made the first of two expeditions to the Americas following in Humboldt's footsteps. And so the first mainly is in Colombia, and then in 1857, the second trip mainly took uh, place in Ecuador. So the painting itself depicts a vast landscape with very, very small figures in the middle ground by a crucifix. So, Lewis, when looking at this painting, would you say that it is a real place? I, I can't see it. I don't have it. You don't have it? I, what do you mean you don't I, have it? That's oh. why I was looking at your screen. <laughs> no way! Okay, I'm going to pause and I'll be right, we'll be right back so he can look at the painting. All right, we're back after we're a back. small technical difficulty. My bad, I didn't this picture into uh pop quiz <laughs> yeah it was a pop quiz i didn't add the picture into your into your google slides um but okay so i thought you've been looking at this the whole time looks great now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh so so lewis when looking at this painting would you say that it is a real place sure sure yeah, okay. Uh, it's not. Oh. Ah, you knew it was coming. I was setting it up for you. <laughs> um, so this painting is actually a compilation of many sketches and watercolors that he created on his exploration in Ecuador. So oh. I think you can you can kind of tell like there's like this sort of um, woody semi- I don't want to say jungly, but it has like similar like tropical plants. Like you're just coming out of a jungle and looking yes, at Yes, and then you range. see mountains, and then behind you, you see these snow-covered mountains, yeah. maybe, I don't know, volcano peaks. I, I Way in the back. Yeah, and so it's like, it's it's kind of like you have the 
not the world's first Photoshop because it's not the world's first Photoshop, but like kind of like a Photoshopped landscape, essentially, like an, an early concept of it. I was and going then, for Rocky Mountains. That's Rocky. Where, that's where I thought we were at. No, this is this is an Ecuador. Ecuador. Various Ecuadorian landscapes kind of spliced together. Um, yeah, and so like there's this very, very tiny little crucifix it, I see that um, in, in the, the bottom, bottom left. but it's so yeah. small, like you can barely see it, and that's kind of intentional, but I mean the cross itself stands out because it's like this really stark white, and then you see this tiny little person there, and they're kind of really not there at all. Um so Is this sort of this cross, is this sort of uh like laying claim to this whole land or, or what's what's the deal with this you bring up a fascinating point um yes and then i think also there have been some readings of this painting where it could be like a grave marker mm. um but i would tend to follow the line that if even if it is a grave marker it's very much laying claim to this right. land because if someone even if it, like you said it is a grave marker it's still significant enough that that's the only thing you can see besides landscape in this painting. Yeah, you can barely. So it's the only man-made thing. Yeah, you can barely see the person. Like he has, like I think it's like a tiny, tiny red, red shirt, and it's like the only way you can distinguish him. Yeah. Um, from everything else. Uh, but you know, it's not one landscape, and so like, what happens when church combines different places into one? And you can answer this, or I can continue. <laughs> continue on. Uh, well, it looks super neat. And I'm over here looking at this lake kind of in the background here. I thought these were like little buildings, but not. Mm -hmm. It's just no, like it's just like it's rocky. like rocky terrain. There's like a waterfall um, in, in semi foreground. It's not quite the middle ground, but it's not like the front of the foreground either. Um, but like, you know, like what what happens like when you when you combine different locales into one area and you're sort of claiming that this, this is what Ecuador looks like. So like what kind of happens there? True to the name, you are romanticizing. Yeah. You're the romanticizing landscape. it. And sorry, like I, I think I went into full like teacher. I, I do this, uh, I cover this painting with my students and, um, I've only had like one student guess that it is not a natural landscape. And I was like, I'm so proud of you, but you ruined my mojo. I think I, I wanted it to be so real that I just thought it would be real. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it, it sort of creates this very problematic understanding of the Ecuadorian landscape and its people. And, and for, this is, like, I feel, like, emphasized because in the New York exhibition of his 10-foot canvas, which is what we're looking at, the heart of the Andes, I don't know if I mentioned that already or not, which I should have, but oh well. Anyway, um, so this was housed in, like, this very elaborate, window-like frame and it's illuminated or it was illuminated in a very dark room that sort of concealed um like the skylights have been concealed and it was like this hidden gem feeling yeah kind of think like uh they have like curtains drawn like you're going into this very like uh almost dark gallery or, or like it's lit by candlelight obviously like the period that it was created um lit by candlelight or i don't know when electricity was created I know. Maybe there was like one light bulb in there. I don't know. Spotlight right on the painting. Yeah, just a very like a very like very dimly lit. Like it it's like theatrical lighting, like stage lighting. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it would have had you know like curtains around it. You're pulling it back. You're showing this, and it was actually like a whole, um, 
like uh, performance almost when this painting was shown. So when you finally see this, it's almost mystifying. Yeah, like the painting itself is massive. I think it's actually, I think it's still on view at the Met. Um, let me check really like quick. Like found the gates to Narnia. Yes, it is on view at the Met right now. So for any of my New York listeners or students who might be, have like continued listening to the podcast, I don't know, um, you can actually, you can still see it. And so I encourage you to go look at it and kind of like imagine what it would be like to see this in sort of like this theatrical setting. And so they would just jam pack people into this gallery and they would reveal the painting and they're all like, oh, amazing um and they actually had to because of how detailed it is it's like it's almost like a panoramic view so if you can imagine like how big of a painting that is uh kind of like a history painting almost um it's uh they had to use opera glasses to see a lot of these details and so there's like this really intricate look at the various you know plant life animal life that are sort of packed into the painting itself so when you have this much like show and tell and and performance around a, a painting like that i would be mystified by it mm-hmm. i would want to go there yeah, i mean like that's definitely a huge part of this especially like you know it was uh exhibited in 1859 the u.s is very much trying to expand outward they're just really starting to stick around in latin america and you know sort of screw over local economies um and so this was part like this painting was sort of a part of that like political moment um but it was a very popular display it was it was a single artwork display obviously in the civil war era it attracted around 12,000 people in three weeks to its new york premiere alone which at the time that's like massive um, and then it traveled to Britain and several other American cities on a tour that lasted about two years. Uh, so the exhibition of the Heart of the Andes in New York was said to have occasioned Church's courtship and marriage to Isabel Carnes, Um, So in 1860, and the couple eventually settled on a hillside uh, farm overlooking the Hudson River in New York. Um, Are you saying this painting tied the knot? And that is what has been said, yes. Wow. I mean, I don't know how, how true that is, because, you know, it's like, right. like a, oh, it's a romantic painting, and he met his wife, and they got married, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, they got to like, build the you know, story. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's kind of like the whole, like, you know, like, romantic look at the, the view. What are you about? <laughs> I just got a job offer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, money! That's great. Um, uh, but yeah, so, like, paintings like this really encouraged u.s intervention into latin american countries because yeah. you know it's a landscape that has yet to be explored or for lack of better terms conquered um but also, i imagine the people seeing this they're probably in some kind of position of power like it's not just your everyday run-of-the-mill commoners I mean, it was i think it was a combination because of how far it traveled oh, okay. and if, i mean if you think of new york city at the time like it's a huge mix like it's a mix sure. of immigrants it's a mix of upper class and it's a it's a mix of the emerging middle class so to see a painting like this i mean it kind of plays into the the emerging uh, idea of leisure um kind of like what you would see in the impressionist era um and so looking at this like i think the tickets for I think if I remember correctly, because I also had to uh, study this painting for my first exam, um, which is the first composition, comp- comprehensive exam, sorry, not composition. Um, and I think the tickets were like 
penny, but back then that was kind of like expensive. It was like, it was a couple pennies or something like that. Um, but it was still like relatively expensive to go see this painting. So, you know, you'd get dressed up, you know, you, you're going out to be seen, but also to look at others and look at the work itself. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of like, it was a lot of pomp around seeing a painting like this. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was really like a way to sort of encourage U.S. expansion. And I mean, if we look at the the history of development in Latin American countries, uh, like, for example, with, with Guatemala, they actually encouraged, you know, Americans at some point, you know, encouraged, we say that term loosely here, um, Americans to come and start their farms like and start like you know agricultural homesteading yeah, yeah. And, and like it's a it was a way to i mean this is kind of a way to whiten the state um, um guatemala wasn't the only one to do that argentina did it they invited kind of encouraged italians to come to argentina which is why um many argentines <laughs> are very white presenting um and so if you kind of have to look at this and so when you see a painting like this and the context in which that it was shown we might even consider that it encouraged some of this, but, or mostly that it encouraged the U.S. to kind of be like, that's land that we want and we can develop, and so we're going to go over there and fuck some shit up. Um, Little did they know, it was all a sham. It was all a sham. Isn't it real, guys? It's not real. The painting's not real. Um, yeah, so any final thoughts on on flora and fauna? We still have one other topic to cover, and we're already at 44 minutes. Oh, my gosh clickbait the whole the whole painting is clickbait oh. now that i know it's fake no, no i mean like uh the the von humboldt and the church like together like do you have any any thoughts that you want to add because I, I have a couple more points that i want to make but nope shaking her head okay so one of the really. to me like one of the fascinating things about this moment at least according to don aids who um i used her her textbook or i think it's like an exhibition text honestly um but it's a book that you should read if you want to kind of have like a giant Latin American survey. Um, but so according to, to AIDS, it's, um, oh gosh, I lost where I was going with this. Give me one second. Okay. So Don AIDS is that the Latin American art was born during the enlightenment period. And in some ways it actually conflicted with the rising independent movement. So its beginnings really brought this separation from colonial and Christian ideologies and these breaks between government and church in favor of science, which shaped a lot of early Latin American politics and by extension, the artistic focus. Um, so even though there was probably like in some ways, like especially with the romantic viewpoint of it, um, it's it's more so looking at like the scientific lens. But of course, you know, we talked about problematic. Um, but so from the studies that were conducted in the work of artist travelers, these scientists were also able to study the indigenous people. Um, and so one of the things that I was thinking of while reading about artist travelers, and, and we'll probably talk about this more in the, the second part of the uh, artist travelers series, is that in some way, it's kind of a new version of Costa paintings. And so even though the practice itself was really segregated to Mexican colonial artists, the studies and quote, quote, studies of the indigenous inhabitants and the plant life and animal life that that sort of relate um, relate to it it it's rooted in this racial geographical and social hierarchy that positions the pure euro-descended latin american above that of the mestizo indigenous and black demographics and so it's in in my opinion and i mean 
I'm sure other scholars might disagree with me. Um, I, I really think that it's it's this continued interest in this ethnography and for the lack of better terms, but what they would actually use when creating stuff like this is the interbreeding of the races and hybridization of Afro, Indigenous, and European cultural traditions. Yeah. Um, that's kind of like, but I think we'll talk a little bit more about those complexities. In, I think you really see that in the in the Von Humboldt's Austin yes, of the Indians of definitely Michoacan. Yeah, I hope I said that right. Michoacan, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll talk more in depth about it in the in part two of Artist Travelers. Because um, we're going to look at um, the scientific observations of archaeological sites and sort of them positioning indigenous subjects in there. Um, and so, yeah, but on to the second category for today's episode. Here we go. Uh, the landscape and expansion. And we're going to look at the works of Johann uh, Moritz Ruhendas. And I am going to try and say his name. But if I mess it up, I'm so sorry, Argentina. Uh, Perlidiano Cuellardon. It's a tongue twister. It's it's hard to say. There's a there's a lot of consonants in there. Um, and I do apologize if I said it incorrectly. Um, but so church was really this kind of transition into landscape and expansion. Um, but there are a couple more aspects of expansion that I think we should cover, and a few small distinctions between uh like church's painting and and those of. Uh, and I'm trying so hard. Um, so now that we sort of covered the general flora and fauna, we're going to transition into landscapes and their goal of expansion, um, particularly within, you know, the Latin American context. Church's painting really served the, the United States context. Um, and so, like the previous works, these are semi-rooted in the Enlightenment with their emphasis on the size of the landscapes in comparison to the human subjects, but really these paintings tended to have a more romantic view on both nature and humanity. So these artists used the methods of flora and fauna observations, but they tended to be more interested in depictions of local traditions or travel, and there's, there's still this emphasis on the picturesque. Now, this is kind of separated into school two schools of thought, the first being, um, or actually the first that we're going to discuss, the one that we're going to focus on for this episode, is the positions of small local subjects in a larger, almost engulfing landscape. Like they're insignificant. Yes. Um, and the second is an emphasis on the subjects where we can easily distinguish their features, their actions, and in some cases, the historical events that the artists are depicting. This kind of falls into uh, the costumbrista, costumbrista sorry, um, aspect. And we're like, there's two parts of but we're going to look at the one where it's focusing more on the landscape, not really the people. Um, so both of these, well, all of these traditions that we're going to look at today in terms of landscape and expansion um, have this romantic view on the countryside and more or less underdeveloped or untouched terrain. Um, so there, like I said, there's two sub-themes I want to talk about in the section, nature versus civilization through the works of Johann Moritz Rudendas and then the Costumbrista through the works of I'm going to try it again. Liriano uh, Poirón. I'm so sorry. Um, so anyway, the first one, nature versus civilization. So Rugen Das was born in 1802, died 1858. Wow, he's kind of young. Um, he was a German painter famous in the first half of the 19th century for his works depicting landscapes and ethnographic subjects in several countries in the Americas. He was very influenced by Alexander von Humboldt. 
So from 1822 to 1825, as part of the Langsdorf expedition, Rubenthas depicted many black people living in Brazil. Um, at this point, they still would have been enslaved. Uh, Brazilian emancipation didn't happen until 1888, for some context. Uh, so along with other ethnographic artists who worked in Brazil, such as Jean-Baptiste Debré, who we'll look at in the second part, and uh, François-Auguste Biard, uh, Ruindas is part of the tropical romantic uh, romanticism. So this movement really challenged the dichotomy between nature and civilization and considered places such as colonial Brazil to be a harmonious environment of racial mixing. And obviously that's super problematic. Um, but tropical romanticism was one of the main elements that influenced uh, Ruindas' representations of Black subjects. And so according to uh, Freitas, Ruindas illustrated black subjects of varied origins, but most importantly is that he did not distinguish them. He made them look all of the same, and so obviously that's so, so problematic, and uh, you'll see in the slide, but we're not quite there yet. Um, so the illustrations of his related to um, uh, enslaved Brazilians is that, uh, I lost where it was my notes, I'm sorry. So, there is so, an ethnographic purpose to this. Gotcha. So the the people depicted in in Rugendas's painting that we're looking at, we haven't gotten there yet. But yes, oh, we will. <laughs> time travel. So, so these aren't actually their faces and their likenesses, right? This is just kind of Rugendas's interpretation yes. of them. Yes, and we'll go into a little bit more depth in a second. I feel like it's super easy to forget, like. He didn't just go and snap a photo of what yeah. he's depicting. He he's taking his time and painting this, and yeah. he's putting the faces. Like it was partially posted in a studio too, but um, but yeah. So like the many painted images uh of of these subjects um in, in various scenes sort of presented activities of urban work such as street commerce, water transportation, and laundry. But we're gonna be looking at his more provincial works. Um, and so the main focus of these was was in the activity in the landscapes rather than detailing the individuality of his subjects, particularly his Black and Indigenous subjects. And so for this reason, he portrayed a very generic type of non-white subject in these scenes. So he is, you know, very, very problematic in his approach to to this. And so just kind of like a rough timeline of of, of him, he from 1815 to 1817, he studied at the Academy of Art in Munich. Uh, 1822 to 25, he in, he joined an Austrian-Brazil expedition. He remained in Brazil until 1825, and eventually, between 1825 and 28, he returned to Europe, and he wanted to learn more art techniques. And then lastly, in his broader timeline, from around 1827 to 1835, um, the timeline is a little bit disputed in, in, in different books, but he publishes his book, uh, Voyage Pitoresque de Brazil, or Picturesque Voyage in Brazil, uh, which contained more than 500 illustrations. So he has so many of these, both of the landscape, people in the landscape, um, but still in, in the majority of, if it's people in like a natural landscape, they are not the focus of it. And that's what we're going to look at today. His, his city scenes are interesting but really problematic too um so if you approach his work i highly encourage you to be critical of it um like i think we're gonna do today uh, so the first work of his that we are going to look at is his lithograph from his brazil Expedi expedition called 
Um, and, and this is in Portuguese. No, and I don't speak Portuguese. Entero de um negro. And so, or the in, interment of an African man. Um, and so this scene is a funeral procession with townspeople, probably the man's family and the clergy. And although the title of the work itself focuses on the funeral procession, Bruchendas has made the subjects incredibly small in relationship to their environment. And even though he doesn't alter the proportions of the subjects, um, like making them even smaller than they should be uh, to focus on that landscape, we know that they aren't the focus of the scene. Because typically in a funeral scene, we would be closer to the subjects where we can actually see their individual faces, their expressions. Um, and here we can't. Instead, we see the distinctions in the foliage and yeah, the, the prominence of the city in that background. The, the flora and fauna has more detail than the human. Yeah, I mean, like, they have, like, you you can probably, I mean, if you were a sciencey person, not me, um, you could probably identify the different types of palms, the different types of like tropical plants. And then it's yeah. it's really juxtaposed against that. I think it's meant to be a cathedral, typically the largest uh, building in any of these um, older cities at this point in time. They It was the largest building. And so you could see it from a distance. And I'm I think that that is meant to be a cathedral. Um and so, so yeah, so he's he's really emphasizing that natural element and its prominence over the architecture, over the subjects themselves. Um, and then, yeah, just like a kind of like I had mentioned earlier, he's very known for homogenizing his African subjects, which is of course prevalent here. So on yours, you could you can zoom in more. Um, I have mine in a small like word document, so I don't I don't want to spread it out, but um, you can see that they look nearly identical and right. and this is in part due to the fact that the subjects are small and far away from the foreground but it's it's present in the afro-indigenous and indigenous subjects in the lithograph and the only individualized subject in is the white priest um he's sort of in the middle of the procession just a just before yeah. the the deceased Got right like a little hat or something and he, you can you can see his facial features clearly but if you look at the other subjects particularly the ones closest to us the ones who are clearly not white um i'm not sure if they're afro indigenous or indigenous or maybe i don't know one or the other but um you can see that their faces almost look exactly the same like he hasn't he hasn't distinguished them at all um and so uh, you know obviously his homogenization of black and indigenous subjects really reinforces racial hierarchies by implying that they're all the same which is so problematic um and i feel like you know there kind of isn't a great way to transition from that but I do want to show you a few of his studies of palm trees because I think it'll give you some more context as to why the focus of, of this work is really the foliage. So if you go to your next slide, um, you have two two subjects. Uh, so the, Same thing like you're yeah. talking about where we do see some people in there, which I'm guessing they're indigenous people, but they're not the focus of this no. in fact they're so insignificant you i wouldn't blame you if you lost them looking at the photo and looking yeah. at all the, all the plants and stuff. yeah and like that one on the left like you can see that it's just the natural landscape it's like this it's kind of like you're looking up at palm trees but also kind of you're not on the ground but you're not on the same level you're kind of like maybe like a couple feet in the air like if you're on like a little rocky ledge or something 
Um, and then that that second slide, yeah, like I had to circle it for you where where they were because they're so tiny, and they're like, and this this is repeated in so many of his studies in the in the palm trees or just natural landscape. And you know, um, he like I said, he does have other like uh more like city settings, and like one of his more famous ones is actually at um one of the locations where they would sell enslaved individuals, and so that has become I think um. I think I remember the Manil did something with it, or maybe I'm, I don't know, but I know that I've, <laughs> I've looked at it before and there's, it's, it's very problematic. And so, I mean, I think that his works are even more striking and, and not the good kind, uh, because of course, Brazil was the hub for the slave trade in Latin America. And so I feel like in his case, these undertones aren't really undertones. They're very much overtones in, in the way that he's viewing, um, African subjects and indigenous yeah, it, subjects. It's almost like he's treating them like uh, just kind of animals that inhabit the the landscape. Yeah, something and it's, like that. it's very clear um, in the way that and, and he does this, in the way that he composes the settings. I mean, if you look at his his uh, city ones, which I know we're not talking about today, but um, like they, it's it it's really pulling from like the idea of of minstrel, right? The, like the minstrel, like. Um, like what we would see in like blackface in like civil war era. So if you ever go to like an antique store and you see like little figurines of, of African subjects, they are very racist. Um, and so that's kind of what he does in some of his watercolors. And so it's really problematic. You don't see it in these ones. Um, Cause I, I, like I said, I was focusing on artist travelers and like the, the natural element of it. Um, and those are based primarily in the cities. And when they're colored with watercolor, they, it is very apparent. I'm noticing in this painting on the right, uh, freaking crocodile or alligator. I don't know which one it is. It's bigger than the people. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm trying to zoom in, but I can't. Well, but yeah, like you can, you can see the, I think it's a, I think that's a crocodile because it's, it's snout comes to a point. Um, but that you can distinguish that more clearly than you can distinguish the people in the yeah. background. So it's it's very clear that he is you know, implementing certain racial hierarchies, and it's very problematic. A lot of his works are very, very, very problematic. Um, but uh, before we keep, I know that again, there's really no great way to transition because it's it is kind of a heavy topic. But um, I do want to to move on to Costumbrista uh, and the work of Frideriano Bayeron. <laughs> trying so hard to say his name and i'm so sorry if i'm mispronouncing it um he was born in 1823 died 1870 uh so i will say that this part of the artist traveler does really blur into later issues in latin american art especially in the case of the gaucho um, as we'll see in many of his works but the time that the works were created as well as the monumentality of nature over humans is what distinguishes them from later costumbrista paintings that put more of a focus on the gaucho or the human subject um, rather than the natural one so in Argentina, Costa painters dominated the post-independence period, particularly during the Rosas dictatorship. And so they're kind of of two modes, like I had said, you know, there's the first one, which is the one that we're looking at that focuses on more on the nature, and the second one that focuses more on the human form itself. Um and and I think uh that one tends to to take hold in other Latin American countries more too. Uh so uh 
Cuellerodon <laughs> completed his primary education at the upper class Colegio de la Independencia. Independencia. Um, in 1835, his family relocated to Europe, where he completed his education, and he spent the school year in Paris and summers in Cadiz, where his father owned a business importing Argentine leather. So, very wealthy family. You know, like most of the artists that we look at in this period. They are very privileged. Um, and so for a period of time, he was the painter for uh, Ar Argentine aristocratic families. And then he became one of the first painters to actually explore the figure of the gaucho, uh, whom he depicted in a very romantic style. And I think once you look at them, you'll kind of see what I mean. Um, and so he kind of, you know, pulled from the romantic style that he uh, learned in Europe. But um, many of his works depict life in the wilds of the Pampas or Campesino, the, the provincial, the, the countryside. Um, and so he he would frequently put them on the banks of the Rio de la Plata, um, and so just just very very like natural looking. And so let's look at his painting uh, Rodeo. Uh, it's 1864, and there's also a detail that I gave you of, of two gachos. Um, so he painted a, a range of rural tasks in this work: men saddling a horse, shepherds herding a cattle, or herding cattle, sorry, uh, horsemen keeping a watch and, and participating in the rodeo acts themselves. And it's it's a very low horizontal line that grounds the work and emphasizes this flatness of the pampas, while the vast and sort of seemingly fertile farmlands of Argentina are juxtaposed with the open sky. And so it's really a panoramic view that adds to this idea of surveying the land and like with the church painting it makes the region almost enticing to populate um either with you know agricultural work or with you know like more like city centers but here obviously i, I think it's geared more towards this romantic look on provincial life and the labor is almost heroicized the gauchos are in the bottom left corner and in the detail you can really see that their attire looks more like a costume it doesn't really look used they don't look kind of like muddied up they got or like, posed for this yeah it kind of looked like they they were in their uh best version and they're like okay we're gonna sit on this for the painting or yeah. sit on this horse for the painting um but then you know kind of moving on to his other painting the heist of san isidro this is in 1865 we can see you know again a very vast flat landscape with the covered wagon which is very very small in the center middle ground um, and then on the left there's this very large tree and on the right of the covered wagon there's what appears to be an agave plant with i think it's called like the the death frond where it like sprouts out from the center and it grows very very tall and it stretches well above the covered wagon uh very far far into the sky um but the most striking part i think of this work is the sky itself yeah. it's somewhat overcast particularly in the background portions of having this dark bluish gray clouds um, but as the sky moves closer to us, uh, the viewer, it has this feel of either a sunrise or a sunset or maybe like part rays of sunshine that are peeking through uh, to highlight the plains, like if um, clouds have parted after a, a rainy day almost. Um, and so I think this really emphasizes the main focus of the painting is not the person steering the covered wagon, but the pampas, the vastness of what can be developed either through agriculture or developing technology. So it's very, in my opinion, a very romantic approach. The land ready to be tamed. Yeah, I mean, like, and like the way that he does the rays, like coming down from the sky, it kind of looks... I know this doesn't look cartoonish, but if you think of like, you know, like in, I don't know, Spongebob, like the, the sun shines down and it's like uh, a chosen one. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Um, and so I think, yeah, I think that this is very, it's a very romantic take. And I know I keep saying that. I, I'm getting, uh, again, Oxbow vibes. Love that Oxbow. Uh, where, you know, you have like the dark clouds on the left of the painting in Oxbow. And then on the right, you're kind of coming, you're looking upon this land where it's all sunny and the clouds have dispersed. It's kind of the same feeling here where it, it almost looks like this wagon is kind of going away from the storm mm -hmm. to a daylight. That's just my interpretation. Like, yeah, the wagon is coming towards us, um, like yeah. us, the viewer. Um, but yeah, no, like I would completely agree. I, I mean, I think that paintings like this are kind of, even though they are representative of like the gaucho, um and the the costumbrista that is very popular i think in a way we can kind of view it as a type of manifest destiny of moving sure. outward and it, it is essentially like and that's what the gauchos are doing yeah i mean and too if you if we look at the history of of expansion not just in the united states or not just in latin america but in the united states when you when like the non-indigenous populations expand out in you know in latin america it's a little bit more complex because a most of the inhabitants do have indigenous uh, uh, ancestry, um, but you know you move out into the countryside and you push out indigenous populations, and so in a way, I think paintings like this kind of reflect that that um, I, I don't know, kind of where where's like the stuff we were looking at before. It was kind of like like chapter zero or step zero. Yeah, this is like the next step in that. Yeah, now we've got our people quotes mm -hmm. on the ground there doing the thing living to that that dream that manifest destiny that we were sort of romanticizing with the works we looked at prior yeah and like it's a very it's a very regional view of manifest destiny it's obviously not like the same that we think of in the united states but it's it's still very much of like that expansion outward and right. that way it's like it's it's in some ways it's forcing assimilation but in other ways it's also essentially like in like kind of like pushing towards like genocide i mean maybe that's a little too far but i mean if you think about like the the history of like the united states in particular when we when we expanded outward like westward it forced indigenous populations off their land right. and they committed like these terrible acts you know of like just killing as much um of the animals that they relied on like so, a necessary consequence for what they're up to no in their mind in in their mind yes <laughs> um yes in their mind it was like um like a hurdle to to overcome which is so problematic yeah. right um, I mean, they don't care no they don't because they were terrible people but um yeah i think that's that's a similar idea is present here in my opinion i think I, I'm sure, like, other Americanists would disagree, but if we look at the functionality of the painting, it's doing a very similar thing, in yeah. my opinion. Um, but yeah, so, like, I guess, like, we're, we're approaching over the hour mark already, so uh, conclusions on both sections. So, I think in looking at the flora and fauna studies with those of the landscapes, kind of like you had said, it's it's really, we can really see how these artists are are surveying the land, both in terms of scientific study, but also this more romantic idea of nature in its entirety and what can or cannot be tamed by humans. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited for the second part of the episode that's going to tie up all of these loose ends and we'll dive deep into the more anthropological studies of artist travelers and the issues that arise from this. And then, of course, we'll end on some uh, paintings that kind of have all of these aspects in them. Um, and so before we sign off, I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you, Lewis, for coming on the podcast. 
Um, your uninformed uh, yeah. average listener guy. Um, but uh, please, please share with your friends. You can follow at Artwatch Podcast on social media. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Sort of. I'm on TikTok. And most recently, I'm on Lemon Eight, like Lemon with the number eight. Um, and in case TikTok actually gets banned, uh, the content varies a little bit by each platform. But uh, yeah, you can really help me beat the algorithm by interacting with my posts, stories, reels, etc. Hundred years of Outwatch. Hundred years. What? 100 years of art watch oh art watch they said out watch i was like what is that 100 more years oh sorry at least um yes hopefully 100 years i'm gonna be like an old witch i don't know art witch art witch <laughs> i originally wanted to title the podcast art witch but oh. i was like that's too niche <laughs> but uh anyway so if you have any questions about the episode you think we missed something or you're like no i vehemently disagree with you you are terrible <laughs> or you just have something you want me to cover in a future episode you can email me artwatchpodcast at gmail.com and of course make sure you check out the website www.artwatchpodcast.com for some really cool new stuff especially with those blog posts um but without further ado thank you so much for supporting artwatch and i will see you on the next artwatch wednesday bye goodbye